Hey, if you've got a Bible with you today, I'd like to invite you to take it and turn to 2 Samuel uh, chapter 11. We're going to spend most of our time uh, in 2 Samuel 11 today. And if you don't have a Bible, uh, don't worry. We'll have the verses up on the screen uh, so that you can follow along with us too. You know, I remember sitting in a classroom one morning about 12 years ago, and I was taking graduate classes at the time in northern Indiana at Bethel College, and uh, one of the students in my class, uh, his phone rang. Now, it's one thing to not turn off your ringer in class or in church for that matter, uh, but it's another thing that not only did it ring in class during lecture, but he answered it right in the middle of this uh, professor's lecture. But uh, come to find out, we were so grateful that he answered it. Uh, It was his wife, and she was calling to tell him that an airplane had just flown into one of the World Trade Center towers. And um, probably you all remember where you were and what that moment was like when you first saw the news and maybe watched it on TV because that day changed everything. Uh, It changed everything for everyone and forever. Well, I was an associate pastor at the time, and because our senior pastor was previously scheduled to be out of town to speak at a conference... I was scheduled to preach as a very young preacher that first Sunday after 9-11 and uh, seeing how all of the events of 9-11 were coming together and affecting people in so many different ways across the country. I thought for sure I'd be pulled from my preaching spot so that our senior pastor could step in and really do what our senior pastor did best, but it didn't go like that. Uh, My senior pastor firmly believed that God was telling him to fulfill his responsibilities and follow through with this previously scheduled conference. And so for me, in what became one of my most defining moments in history or in ministry early on, uh, this man looked into my life and he showed me confidence, the confidence that he had in my abilities by asking me to preach to his church, to that church on that first Sunday following 9-11. And I'll just tell you, the place was packed. And there were so many people who had come and who were hungry. And I'll never forget how God worked in my life and in that church on that particular day and how so many people responded. I mean, it really was a defining moment for me. And I tell you that story today. I tell you it for a couple of different reasons. Um, First of all, uh, before that phone ever rang in that class, I had already prepared my message and was preparing that Sunday to preach on David and Bathsheba. All right, and it quickly became uh, known to me that you just really don't preach on David and Bathsheba after a major event like that in our country. And so I couldn't help but groan a little bit this week uh, when it occurred to me when it occurred to me what we were scheduled to preach on today. I mean, come on, nothing says Pentecostage on your mom and come to church as a family like talking about David and Bathsheba, you know, on Mother's Day Sunday, right? Well. If you've been around Genesis uh, for a while now, you know that we've been in this series called The Story. And, and what we're doing is we're reading through the Bible together in 2013, and we're talking about you know those events of the Bible here on Sunday mornings. And so that means planning out our preaching schedule a year in advance. And while I'll admit that we did talk about, we did think about changing the topic for today, uh, I just really felt like God was, was kind of pushing, really just kind of pressing in and saying, no, you, you keep the course. Yeah, this is the message that I have for my people today. And so um, we're looking at the story of David and Bathsheba. And if you know the story, if you're familiar with the story, sure, it's a story about the dangers of an affair, uh, the dangers of sexual immorality and temptation. And we're going to talk about some of that today. But what I also want you to see is really more than anything that this is a story of defining moments. 
because we all have these defining moments that pop up in our lives, some like the one that I shared a moment ago in preaching on that particular Sunday, but I don't want to talk about those kinds of defining moments today. Instead, what I want to talk to you about are those defining moments that we come to, an intersection in life of sorts, and a decision has to be made. It's kind of like in your life, you come to a fork in the road and you've got to make a choice whether to go right or to go left. And, well, they're big decisions. Uh, They're great big decisions. You know, these kinds of decisions have the power to change and influence so many different things in your life. They're decisions that have the the, the potential uh, to affect you and others in positive and negative ways. And if it's a really big decision then not only is it going to affect you and even the immediate people around you, but it's going to affect your spouse, it's going to affect your children, your parents, and maybe even your legacy too. And here's what I want. Here's, or here's what I believe that God wants. Here's what I believe that, that He has for us. I, I believe that our God has a plan, that He has a plan for your life and He has a plan for my life, and He wants the very best for us. But Because I don't look at God and, and His Word as a series of make-or-break rules and that depending on how well you perform with those rules has everything to do with what He thinks of you. It doesn't do that because our God's crazy about you. I mean, He loves you. I mean, that's why he sent his own son, Jesus Christ, into this world to die on the cross to pay the price for sin. And I, again, I believe that God has a way. He has a plan for every single one of us, a way that is marked out. And it's a life full of joy. It's a life full of significance. It's a life of purpose and fulfillment. It's a life that brings him glory. And when we come to those moments in life, those intersections where a decision has to be made, our God wants to show us the way to go. You know, he wants us to follow him and in his paths. And so... Today, I want to look at an example of this, and I want to look at the life of a guy by the name of David. Now, if you know this story at all, you know that David is the only man in the Bible to be referred to as a man after God's own heart, and that's a high compliment. And I want you to hang on to that because of the significance of such a compliment. And David is full of so many great examples, so many good examples for us to follow and to live by, but today he messes up royally, and not just a little but a lot. And I got to be true. I got to be honest too. I'm a little sympathetic towards the guy. When I think about a guy by the name of David, I mean, there are something like 62 chapters in the Bible devoted to David. Like that's public record of all of his mess ups and vices recorded for generations to read and to discuss and to talk about on Sunday mornings like today. I mean, can you imagine that? I mean, can you imagine living your life under such a microscope? I mean, would you want to live with that kind of pressure on your life, knowing that several thousand years later, they'd still be talking about you and about how you messed up? It's kind of like the uh, NHL hockey goalie that was asked about what he loved about playing in front of thousands of people each night. And he says, I don't know, how would you like it if every time you made a mistake, a red light came on and everyone got to watch the replay, you know, 18,000 fans for what you did wrong? That's David. You know, and he was king, he reigned over Israel, and David loved God. He did, he loved God. And God was crazy about David, he loved David. But even in that, this man after God's own heart still messed up. And what I hope you'll see, and what I really want you to gain from this story today, is that David faced a number of defining moments in his life, moments where with one decision, he could have changed how his story turned out. I mean, with the right decision, he could have avoided, escaped so much pain and so much chaos. David messed up, much like I have, much like many of you have today. And chaos followed. 
I mean, there was absolute chaos in his life. And here's the thing, and we're going to see this in the end, and it really is the best part of all in this story, that even in all the mistakes, we're going to talk about one defining moment where David made the right decision and how that one decision had the power to change everything for David. And the thing for you is this, that if you're here today and you're looking at a life of regret, if you're looking at a life of pain, if you're looking at choices that have been made and how you have messed up and you've been carrying around the pain and the guilt of those mistakes for so long, like the choice that David made, and it had the power to change everything, if you'd be willing to step out in faith and make a decision like this, it could change everything for you too. So let's get into the story. And then we're going to discuss a little bit of the application. Uh, It starts in 2 Samuel chapter 11, uh, beginning in verse 1. Let's pick it up there. Here's how it goes. It says, In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. Now, that's a very important detail, and we're going to come back to that detail in just a moment. Verse 2. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. Now, the Bible doesn't exaggerate. And so when the Bible uses a word like very, it means something. And so in this case, in the Hebrew, it's probably translated like smoking hot. All right? I mean, that's what David's up against in the moment. And verse 3 says, And David sent someone to find out about her. And the man said, She's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanliness. I I don't know why we got to know that detail, but we do. And then it says, then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I'm pregnant. It's a plus sign. Uh Uh-oh, David, you've got a problem. I mean, he gets another woman pregnant, a woman who's not his wife. And not only is she not his wife, but she's somebody else's wife, and she's not just simply somebody else's wife, but she happens to be the wife of a man named Uriah. Now, Uriah is one of David's most trusted military leaders. I mean, think about it. I mean, how else do you get a home right next door to the king's home? I mean, this guy had a lot of trust in Uriah. Now, part of you might be like, well, wait a minute here. I mean, I mean, is it all David? I mean, do we have to put all the blame on David? I mean, he, he's just out on the roof, and that was common, all right? And she's naked, bathing on her roof, which was probably not as common, at least at this time of the day, next door to the king's home. In fact, some scholars say that while all of the blame is on David here, Bathsheba's not completely innocent in this matter, too. I mean, she's living her life a little carelessly, and potentially she knows what she's up to. But again, David's the one in control. He's the king. He's the one with all the power. He's the one to give in to temptation and then makes this decision to pursue. And this is where I think we can really take away our first piece in this story today. And if you're taking notes in your worship program, uh, you can follow along. You can fill this in. It says this, that we are most, we are most prone to temptation when we're not where we're supposed to be. I mean, it's kind of like this. I mean, if you're on a diet, the last place that you or I probably need to be hanging out is the Pizza Hut lunch buffet, all right? I mean, you just don't do that. Uh, No good can come from that. Uh, If you're having trouble with alcohol, spending the weekends in Broad Ripple with friends is probably not the best place to be. I mean, and in the same way, guys, if you really have difficulty, if you feel very, very challenged and tempted by something like pornography, you know, staying up late at night when the rest of your family is in bed, it's probably not the best place to be. 
You know, not, not much good can come up, come from striking up relationships with old flings on, on things like Facebook or, or partying with friends when you really ought to be at home. Now, you might hear some of this and think, well, come on. Isn't that a little old-fashioned? I mean, it is 2013 and all, but hey, let, let's face it. Temptation is real. And there is power in temptation, and we're all prone to it. I'm prone to temptation. You know, and it's an attack on the brain. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a long time ago, he said it like this. He said this about the power of temptation. He writes, with irresistible power, desire seizes mastery over the flesh. At this moment, God is quite unreal to us. He loses all reality, and only desire for the creature is real. The powers of clear discrimination of decisions are taken away. And so he uses the word irresistible power, desire. It's almost as if God becomes unreal to us, and the ability to make right decisions is so quickly taken away. There is power in temptation. And here's David, a man after God's own heart, and he sees this beautiful woman, and all of a sudden the playing field, the rules change. And even as a man of God, he just starts moving away from God and instead moving towards sin. And when you think about it, it really it wasn't the first look that got him in trouble. It was the second and the third and the fourth look. And if you in your life right now, if you find yourself in a place, a defining place, and you've got an important decision to make, a decision to go right or to go left. And, and that decision, it could involve a relationship that started out as casual flirting, but now it's intensified. You need to break off a relationship like that completely and run from it. You know, I, maybe you're returning to something like pornography over and over again. And if you keep telling yourself, if you keep lying to yourself that it doesn't really matter and it's not hurting anything, well, you're just simply lying to yourself because it is hurting. Or, or maybe it has nothing to do whatsoever with something like sexual immorality. I mean, maybe you're on the verge of making a, an unethical business decision or, or a choice that's going to affect others or leave you in a place where you could get found out. It's unfair or unethical. Or, or maybe you're getting ready to make a great big purchase that's going to involve so much debt that's going to tie you down for years to come. What you think might just simply be a minor diversion could actually be a defining moment in your life. And with the wrong choice... There are just a whole series of destructive consequences that are likely to follow. Again, part of David's problem is that he isn't where he should be. You know, as verse 1 says, you know, in the spring at the time when kings go off to war, David remained in Jerusalem. You know, see, David shouldn't have been on the rooftop this night because he should have never been in Jerusalem to begin with. He should have been at war with the rest of the military as kings normally would do. But he's gotten a little lazy, a little lazy in his own self-leadership. And so now he's got this problem that he's got to deal with. But, I mean, never fear. David's a smart guy. I mean, he really is. And, and he's got a solution. I mean, all he's got to do is figure out how to get Uriah home from war and give him a little romantic evening with his wife. But the problem is that he and Bathsheba, Uriah and Bathsheba, haven't been together for a long time. And so David sends for Uriah. Uriah comes back. And on returning to Jerusalem, he goes immediately to the palace. He goes to see King David. But David's not interested in making small talk with Uriah. He just needs to get him home. Hey, go spend the night with your wife. That's all I need you to do. And so he sends him out. But in fact, David finds, he discovers later on that Uriah is just simply sleeping outside of the door of the palace. I mean, this situation is thick in irony because Uriah's got too much integrity to go home. I mean, he doesn't feel like there's any way that he can go home and spend the evening with his wife when all of his fellow soldiers are off fighting a war. And so David keeps trying. I mean, he even tries to get Uriah drunk and tries to send him to Bathsheba, but Uriah still won't go. 
And so in desperation, David's got no choice but to move on to plan B or C. And it's here that we find how low David is willing to stoop. And when you think about it, I mean, it's just amazing what sin can lead us to do, especially when we're trying to cover up our own tracks. Verse 14 says, In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah back to the battle lines. And in it, he wrote, put Uriah out front where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. This from a man after God's own heart. We'd call him a strong Christian today. I mean, how in the world can he sleep with a friend's wife and and then make plans to have this man killed? I mean, it's like he's a different person or something. And in a way, when you think about it, I mean, he is. I mean, it's one of the, the oldest lower story tragedies, and it still happens today because here's the problem for David. I mean, even though he's not off fighting war, he really is engaged in a battle, but it's a battle on the inside. It's a battle with his own flesh. And it's the battle of desire. And if you're a follower of Jesus, I mean, you too, like me, we fight these internal battles all the time. I mean, all of us have faced or will face these moments where the mind or the heart or the conscience, you know, will say one thing. I mean, it's like the Spirit of God yelling to us, go right, go right, go right. But then on the other side, we think, but what if we went left? And what does left have to offer me? The Apostle Paul said it like this in Romans seven eighteen to 20. He says, for I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is in my sinful nature, And then what I would like to call one of the Bible's greatest tongue twisters, he says this, For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. The Apostle Paul says, hey, even in me, I know what's right, and I want to do what's right, but all the time I mess up. All the time I'm doing those things that I know I really shouldn't be doing. And and for all of us, you know, Christian or not, there is just this constant battle raging on the inside between the way of God and the way of the flesh. And if we're going to win this battle, then we need to daily submit to the will of God with our lives and just say, God, I, I want to live for you today. Show me how to walk in your ways in every bit, in every part of my life. And that means that in those defining moments, you know, we don't turn down the path of sin and temptation. But what we do is we we choose the straight path. We choose the way of God instead, even if, even if in the short term, it doesn't look nearly as satisfying as the other way. Well, David's plan works. Uriah's killed uh, right there in battle. And David, he's no longer just an adulterer, but now he's a murderer. I mean, he stacks sin on top of sin. It's bad decision on bad decision. And so... In every effort to try and preserve his reputation, you know, he, he's willing to go to any length. And, and Bathsheba's a widow now, and so he marries her. And so you'd like to think that his sin is covered, and no one will ever know, right? But there are no cover-ups with God. See, our God knows it all. I mean, he knows every moment. He knows every thought. I mean, you can't hide from God. I can't hide from God as much as I'd like. And for David, you know, he tumbles into this season of guilt and, and pain and shame. And, and you can read about some of his inner personal pain in places like Psalm 32, you know, in verse 3, uh, when David writes, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of the summer. 
I mean, this kind of pain and guilt and regret and shame went on David's life for, for a year. And unconfessed sin will do that. It'll do that. Unconfessed sin can rot us as it humiliates us, as it tears us away. I mean, it just eats away. And so one year passed until one day a man, a man of God, a prophet by the name of Nathan, confronts David. And it's really an interesting conversation that you ought to read for yourself. We don't have time to do that this morning. But Nathan basically tells David a story. It's a made-up story about a cheater. And David doesn't realize it at first, but finally Nathan looks at him and he just says in 2 Samuel 12, verse 7, he just says, David, you're the man. You're, you're the one that I'm describing. You're the cheater. And then Nathan with these words says, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And then with these piercing sort of words just says, and if all of this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Now, this is where we come to the most defining moment in David's life. But before we look at that, I want you to just see the situation for David and where he finds himself because the truth is that sin leads to consequences, to great consequences. I mean, we talked about that here at Genesis Church just a few weeks ago about how sin has consequences, and that's in the Bible, but you don't even need to be a Christian or believe in the Bible to realize that, that our actions carry consequences with them all of the time. Kind of like this news story that I came across this past week. I don't know if you saw this or not, but about actions carrying consequences. Uh, here's how it goes. It says, Brazilian health officials say a 28-year-old woman miraculously survived after her husband accidentally shot her in the mouth with a harpoon. I mean, nothing says I love you like a harpoon to the mouth, right? I mean... I mean, you think Novocaine hurts, a little sting of Novocaine? Try getting a harpoon in your mouth. Uh, here's where it goes. The Rio de Janeiro State Health Department says in a Wednesday statement that the woman's husband was cleaning his spear gun when it went off, firing a harpoon that, that hit her cervical spine. Well, she underwent emergency surgery and has recovered, and the doctor says that he expects a full recovery. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to guess that this couple is going to have some issues to work through. I mean, you don't just shoot your wife in the mouth with a harpoon gun and then just go on, you know, like nothing ever happened. I mean, there are, our actions carry consequences, right? But on the serious side, um, sin leads to consequences. You know, and all of us know that. I and mean, we've all made personal decisions that have led to destructive consequences in our lives and in the lives of, of someone else. I mean, you know, think about all of the stories that you hear in the news of people who have fallen or people in your life that have made these great mistakes and maybe tried to cover them up for so many years. And, I mean, we see it all the time. But I just want to make sure that you see that a man after God's own heart, it happened in his life too. And from this moment on in David's life, I mean, really just pure chaos. I mean, a baby dies. Uh, his daughter is raped by one of his sons. And then another son kills, you know, that son out of revenge. And then an, a coup attempt, but it's put down. But another son is lost along the way. And we just see this over and over again. What we see is, is in this story is a man who walks so closely with God, yet experienced one tragedy after another in his life. I mean, it's chaos after chaos. Hey, it's in your notes. One of the consequences of sin is to further separate our lower story from God's story. 
Now, here's what that means. The lower story is what's happening around us all the time. It's what's happening in David's life. It's what's happening in your life and in my life like 10 minutes from now. I mean, it's just those day-to-day things and realities. The upper story is God's overarching story of what he's doing in this world. And you could say that early on in David's life, his lower story was really good. Now, sure, he faced some tough times, but he was living for God. He was trying to live according to God's will. And after this incident with Bathsheba and Uriah, we just see David in decline and lots of bad things happening as a result of his choices. Sin carries consequences. I can't explain it. I can't explain each and every situation, but every decision we make, we can just expect certain results and consequences. And, and for David, there were just a number of defining moments along the way where if he would have made a decision or a choice any differently, the story could have been so different. I mean, think about it. He could have been at war. He could have confessed to Uriah And maybe over a period of time, relationships could have been restored. But unfortunately, again, David just got caught up in this series of choices and he continuously chose his path over God's path. And as a result, his life just began spiraling out of control. And I just wonder if any of you are here today and you're just stuck in a place of mourning or regret of all of these could have moments in your life, could have moments, moments where you look back and think, I could have said no. I could have put my foot down and said, no, I'm not going to live like this. Could have moments where you reached out to get the help that you knew or that others were saying that you really needed to get. I mean, I I could have broke off that relationship with him or her. You could have, but didn't. And now so much pain and so much hurt and regret that you're carrying around and so much chaos. Here's the thing. Chaos could have been the end of the story for David but it's not. And there's one more defining moment that I want you to see that even after a series of poor poor choices, David makes the right choice. And for David, this decision made all the difference in the world. And for you, a decision like this could change everything for you, even starting on a day like today. Because you see, the last king of Israel, Saul, when confronted with his own sin, denied it. He tried to blame it on others. He blamed his actions on other people. And for David, though, when Nathan comes down on him hard with these accusations, David responded in such a simple but very profound way. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, the first half of verse 13, it says, Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. That's his response. And from there, David went on to write one of the most beautiful poems about forgiveness ever written. Uh, If you look at Psalm 51, it's a poem where he wrote about the effects, uh, the rot of sin in his life, and more importantly, about forgiveness. And, And it says in part in Psalm 51, verse 10, he says, David writes, Create in me a pure heart, God, and make my spirit right again. Do not send me away from you or take your Holy Spirit away from me. Give me back the joy of my salvation and keep me strong by giving me a willing spirit. You know, maybe you're here this morning and because of what you've done or because of what you've thought or maybe where you even find yourself right now, you're afraid. You're afraid of what people will think or how they'll respond or even what God thinks of you right now. I mean, maybe you're afraid that if you even own up to what it is that you've done in your past, that that God won't take you back. But I want to tell you today that that's a lie. And it's not true. Because confession is the key to healing. 
confession is where it all begins. You know, con- you know, confession is the key to freedom. And if you've got sin in your life, and that covers all of us here today, we're all guilty of that. And you're at a place in your life where you're feeling broken by that sin, and honestly, it's ruining your life. Confession is the key to healing. James chapter 5, verse 16, James writes it this way, Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. But we think to ourselves, but what will people think? I mean, what, what if they get upset? I've got to tell you that some of your friends might get upset. He or she might be angry, but there is power in confession because confession leads to healing, which leads to freedom. And if you've been carrying around some unconfessed sin or regret in your life, you're not made for that. You don't have to do that anymore. But do you have someone in your life, someone that you can turn to, somebody that loves God, where you can confess that sin to, and maybe they can help you in those next steps and where you go from here? Maybe you need to confess to a a professional Christian counselor. And if that's the case, we'd love to help point you to the right person in that. If you're, if you're caught up today in a pattern, if you're caught up today in a relationship or an unhealthy place in your life, if you've been running, if you've been hiding, if you've been holding on to something, and if you're honest with yourself, it's ruining you and maybe ruining your marriage, you don't have to live like this because confession is the key to healing. I heard a wise person say one time that sunlight is the best disinfectant. And you may be thinking to yourself that there is no way that anyone or he or she will ever understand. I want to tell you today that our God can do great things. He is capable of doing anything and there is nothing too great. There is no giant so tall that our God can't bring that giant down because you can trust him and he is good and he loves you and he loves to forgive his children. And that's what David did. I mean, he was caught. He was busted. I mean, he had no choice but to own up or deny what was going on around him. And thankfully for David, he owned up to that sin and he confessed. And in the last half of that verse, Nathan replied, David, the Lord has taken away your sin and you're not going to die. I mean, what a statement. David, because you've confessed, God has taken away your sin, meaning he's not counting it against you anymore. Healing started with confession for David. And can you imagine how freeing a statement like that was for this man who had suffered for so long? You know, for you and me today, we have the privilege of having God's own son, Jesus Christ, who has already endured the punishment for our sin. And it's why we can read words like 1 John 1, 9, which say, if we confess our sins, our God, he is faithful, meaning he never fails, and he is just, and that he always does the right thing, and he will forgive our sins and then purify us from all unrighteousness. My prayer for you today and what I've been praying for you this week is that you will hear those words and that in faith you will believe that they could make all of the difference for you because you weren't meant, you and I weren't meant to carry around the burden of our choices and of our mistakes, of our past and of our failures. You don't have to do that because you can take them to the cross of Jesus Christ and he will bury them forever. There is healing and freedom in confession and most importantly, in forgiveness. And that forgiveness is for those of you who trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. But if you're not a Christian and you're sitting here today, those words are for you too. And if there is any part of you that thinks at all that you're not worthy to hear or to respond to something like this, well, consider David, a man after God's own heart, you know, with a record like that. God's grace is that good.
His forgiveness is that great. And if our God can redeem and restore an adulterer and a murderer in David, can you even imagine what he could do in your life? Let's pray. As we bow our heads and pray today, I I realize that there may be a number of different prayers that you want to offer up to God today. Maybe one of those prayers has to do with a defining moment in your life right now where you feel like and you believe that you've got a decision to go right or left. And what you need from God today is strength and wisdom. What you need is a heart of surrender. And maybe just pray that right now. Pray, God, give me the wisdom, give me the strength to do what's right, to follow your will for me. Maybe your prayer today has to do with some of the could-have moments in your past. And whatever that is, and no matter how long ago it was, you know for certain that you've been carrying around a lot of pain and regret and hurt. And so maybe you reach out to God today and you say, God, would you heal me? God, I am, I am laying this burden right now at the cross of Jesus Christ to be buried forever. And I am asking that you will come in and restore me and my life and make me right again and help me to enjoy the, the benefits, the wonderful eternal benefits of your salvation. Maybe your prayer today has something to do with confession because you know and you believe that God is working in your heart right now and he is leading you to a place to acknowledge even in your heart and in your mind that you've made mistakes and that maybe you're in a bad place right now but you desperately want to believe and let go today and receive his forgiveness and his direction from where to go here. You can just pray that. God, I've done wrong. Will you forgive me of my sins and cleanse me once again and make me right with you? Do that. Do that right now and let that work begin in your life today. He has promised and he is faithful and he is just and he will forgive us as his words say. Maybe you're here today and your prayer has everything to do with inviting Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior because you've never done that before and you just feel him drawing you to himself today. Maybe you just pray a prayer, God, I need your forgiveness. Jesus, I want you to be the Lord of my life. He responds every time to the prayers of the righteous person. And we are made right through Jesus Christ. All you've got to go to is go to him in humility with your heart today. And our God will respond. Maybe today for you, maybe Mother's Day is a difficult day. Because you haven't been able to have a child. Or maybe you've lost a mom recently. You can go to God even right now in this moment and ask and pray, God, will you give me faith? Will you give me strength to trust you for all things? God, I thank you for leading and guiding us on a day like today, Lord. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, and the way that he's made available to us that we can have a relationship with you because of Jesus, your gift for us. God, show us the way to go. Give us wisdom provide healing. Give us that heart and that desire for confession in our lives so that we can be healed and be in a right place with you. I pray for those who are hurting here today. I pray for those that are seeking that next step and where to go from here, God, that you would lead us and guide us and all along the way that you would be our strength and that we would find all of our joy and all of our significance and purpose in you. We pray this in Jesus' name.